Hello, everyone. My name is Evie Martin. I'm the lead pastor here at Plattwoods Church. Thanks for joining us for worship online today. Does anyone remember what it was like to have a random question come to mind, curiosity about a particular topic or a piece of trivia or wonder about how a certain reality of the world came to be, and you had to sit a while in the unknowing? You had to plan a trip to the library to look up the answer, or maybe turn to the World Book Encyclopedia set on your shelf that you or maybe your parents bought in the 80s. You had to ask someone who had studied such things, or you eventually forgot about the question and moved on with life. There are some watching today who remember no such ancient times. For now, the answers to life, the universe, and everything are right here in our pockets, at our fingertips. For every question that my kids ask at the dinner table, how many moons does Jupiter have? What's the highest skydive a human has made? Did dinosaurs have feathers? My youngest simply says, search it up, mama, search it up. For every question under the sun, Google has an answer in an instant. One would think that as a species, we'd expect a lot more out of Google given its question-answering potential, but it turns out as humans, we've sort of wasted the search engine's energy on fairly mundane things. Here are a few of the most frequent questions asked of Google on any given monthly basis. The first is what to watch. <laughs> Nine million people ask that question every month. The second, where's my refund? That's more of a seasonal question. What's my IP address? Love this one. How many ounces in a cup? <laughs> a lot of bakers out there trying to figure that one out. Uh, this one may be the best. What time is it? <laughs> How to screenshot on a Mac? It's confusing for many people. Um, this one's also really good. Where am I? <laughs> Can't imagine the stories leading up to what would prompt someone to ask that question of Google. Where am I? And then the last one, how to lose weight fast. These are the questions that occupy the minds of so many people that we ask of Google. And we ask Google questions for quick answers. We don't intend to dwell long in the questioning. But this whole sermon series is built around a different kind of question. The kind of question Jesus was fond of asking. Jesus asks questions that invite us into a deeper space of curiosity. Questions that only we can answer. And sometimes we have to sit with them for quite a while. We've already explored his questions, what is it that you want? And do you love me? And today we turn to a third question that Jesus poses in the Gospel of Luke. But before we get to that question, I want to ask one question of you. And this should be an easy one for you to answer. When you wake up in the morning, what is the first thing that your mind gives attention to? Is it the news notifications and headlines that are stacked up and waiting as you reach for your phone on the nightstand? Is it whatever your friends have been up to on social media since you went to bed? Is it your toddler drooling all over you and sitting on your head as they wander in for a morning snuggle? Is it your never-ending to-do list for household, school, work, sports, volunteering that doesn't seem to relent? Is it meditation or music or silence or scripture? 
Is it email or text messages already demanding a response? What is the first thing you put your mind to in the morning? And how does it shape your day? I begin with this question because I think it moves us toward the question that Jesus asks in this story. This scene we're about to read takes place fairly early on in Jesus' ministry, but already he has caught the attention of some of the powers that be throughout the region of Galilee because of what he is teaching and how he is teaching and when and who he is healing. And as you can guess, the attention from the authority figures isn't necessarily positive, considering Jesus doesn't always follow the status quo or rules of law exactly. One day, Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, all over the place. They're already coming to hear him. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came, carrying a paralyzed man on a mat, and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles to the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Quick pause here. Jesus knows he's opening a can of worms with that statement. We read that sentence easily and without question, friends, your sins are forgiven, because we have the gift of context. We know the rest of the story. We know who Jesus is. But in those moments, when Jesus says to the man, your sins are forgiven, what is his unspoken claim? No one has the power to forgive sins. That is God's work and God's work alone, which is exactly the switch that flips with the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the leaders of the religious community who love God with their whole lives, and they live that out with their stringent and steadfast obedience to the law as they believe God has handed it down to them. Their task is to model and to monitor this obedience among the people over whom they have responsibility. The Pharisees are not inherently bad people. They just manage to frequently be the conversation partner when Jesus is trying to teach a new thing or correct a misguided understanding. In this room with the man lying on the mat, sins now forgiven, they never say a word out loud, but Luke, the gospel writer, gives us some interior narrative from the Pharisees' minds going on in the text. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, here's the question, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. 
Now, I've preached on this story before. Maybe you've heard this story before, too. What's the high point of the story? A paralyzed man on a mat on the floor gets up and walks home, right? That's the high point. That's the climax. That's the takeaway from this particular passage. How can we miss it? Except I can't ignore this little prodding that it might not be the whole point. I can't help but wonder if the question Jesus asked in the middle of the story might be just as important for us to hear. He didn't heal the man until after his little exchange with the Pharisees. Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Something about this question and their non-answer changed the trajectory of the story. Jesus was up to something amazing in that room, and he had to stop midway through because there were some folks who were going to miss it. Why were they going to miss it? Because of what they were thinking. The Pharisees, as I've said, were fixated on the letter of the law. It was their job. They were probably paid pretty well to do it. They were proud of their work. And they came in with preconceived notions that Jesus was going to bend, if not break, some rules. So they had to be ready. He knew where their hearts were, but maybe it was more important for them to know where their hearts were. And so he asked the question, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? It's a bit of an odd phrasing of the question in English. We don't think in our hearts, right? We think in our heads and we feel in our hearts. A first century understanding would have placed knowing and feeling all in the same place, actually in the gut, really. But heart is the more familiar word to us and it captures what Jesus means. Why are you focusing your hearts on these things? I emphasize these things because I I think Jesus did. Why are these the things you are focused on right now? Why are these the things you came into the room already worried about, not having any idea what was really going to happen? Did you already have your mind made up what you were going to think when you left? The question becomes more and more relevant for us the more we turn it over, doesn't it? There's science behind this question Jesus is raising, The more we think about something, the more we see it. The more I think about how badly I want a Mustang Mach-E for my next car, the more of them I see on the road. The more I focus on my children's questionable behavior, the more questionably I see them behave. The more I think about how difficult life can be, the more difficult life seems to become. The more I think about how hard a conversation is going to be, the harder it will be. You get the idea. The worlds of math and the internet and the marketplace have all collided to use this truth against us, even, through the wonders of algorithms. An algorithm takes a set of inputs, the stuff that goes in, and produces a desired outcome. We let the internet know, by asking Google, that we're thinking about moving to Jamaica. So mysteriously, miraculously, scientifically, we start seeing more ads about real estate in Jamaica. And suddenly in January, the church is having a farewell party for you because you've bought a tiki bar in Jamaica. Jesus was warning us about algorithms 2,000 years ago. 
Why are you thinking about these things in your hearts? It's going to matter a great deal and maybe cost you a lot of money. We know that we all have preconceived notions about a lot of stuff. We know that what we think about, what we focus on, fixate in our hearts, shapes the reality we see. But how often do we consciously call attention to it in ourselves? Why do you think about these things, whatever these things might be, in your hearts? What is your heart focused on and why? And what's at stake as a result? In the Pharisees' case, they were focused on the wrong, always on the lookout for people making mistakes, tripping over the law, anything that could tarnish the righteousness of the people or of their own reputations. They were scoping out this new rabbi, looking for Jesus to do wrong, so they heard blasphemy in his words. Their thoughts, their hearts, their emotional energy was so devoted to the possibility of wrong that they missed what was right and true. In our case today, what do we choose to focus on? What are we giving the emotional energy of our hearts to? What are the things we are thinking about if Jesus were to ask his question of us? Do we focus our thoughts on the people who frustrate us and disappoint us, waiting on the edge of our seats for them to do it again? Or do we spend more time thinking about the people who are showing up in our lives, the ones we can count on, who let us know that we are loved and cared for? Do we spend all of our time thinking about the things we didn't get to do, opportunities missed, chances taken away from us by timing or circumstance, or do we put our thoughts to the things that we did? Are we thinking about all the loss we've experienced in life? Because everyone has. Or do our minds focus on gratitude for all that we've been given? Do we fix our minds on the injustice and the violence that we see around us in the world? Or can we turn our thoughts to the good work of justice and peacemaking where it's happening? Are we thinking about how right we believe we are about anything at any cost? Or are we curious about what other people think and why they see the world the way they do? The answers to these questions for each of us change how we see and how we experience the world around us. Jesus knew that. That's why he asked the question. Why are you thinking about these things in your hearts? He knew for the Pharisees that it was blurring their view of what God was up to right in front of them. The question isn't meant to sugarcoat our view of the world. Jesus lived and walked the earth among people who experienced tremendous and daily suffering. In no way is he asking anyone to put on rose-colored glasses. But he stepped into a crowd of people that day, some of them hungry, some of them full, some of them educated, some of them comfortable, some of them in pain, some of them penniless, some powerless, and most of them fearful of the powers in the world around them. And some left that house moments later holding on to cynicism and anger and concern. 
The rest left in awe, with a vision of healing and with hope for the future. Some could see the good news and others couldn't. Perhaps the difference was the things they were thinking in their hearts. Jesus' question, why are you thinking about these things? Naturally connects in my mind to words that came years later in the writing of the Apostle Paul. It's a verse I memorized in a song when I was a kid, so it's stuck from Philippians 4.8. From now on, brothers and sisters, if anything is excellent and if anything is admirable, focus your thoughts on these things. All that is true, all that is holy, all that is just, all that is pure, all that is lovely, and all that is worthy of praise. This is the counterpoint to the these things that the Pharisees were thinking about. Set your minds on what is excellent and admirable, true and holy, just and pure, lovely and worthy of praise, because these are the things where we find God at work. These are the glimpses of the holy in our ordinary and often painful lives. The hope in the midst of our brokenness. Think about these things and you will begin to see more of these things. Have you programmed your heart to be fixated on certain things? And are they the right things? Are they true and lovely and just? Are they the things that look like Jesus speaking forgiveness over our sins and picking us up off the floor where we have been crumpled up for far too long? It's never too late to change the algorithms in our hearts, in our minds. It starts with a single moment, one decision to change your mind, to fix your heart on the right things. And so I'll end by asking the same question I started with. When you wake up tomorrow morning, what's the first thing you want on your mind? You get to determine what that is. It might be hard to break old habits, but you can change them, and it is worth it. It could be the difference between missing Jesus altogether or seeing with awe and wonder all that he is up to in your life. Will you pray with me? I woke up this morning with my mind stayed on Jesus. God, in our waking, in our walking, in our troubles and our trials, may the words of that old spiritual ring true. May we wake up each morning with our minds stayed on Jesus. In the questions of Jesus, though they may feel all too personal, help us to find answers within our own hearts. Answers that jolt us out of complacency, lure us out of cynicism, draw us into the full life you have designed for us. Tomorrow, when we start anew, may we choose to fix our minds on you. In the name of Jesus, our hunger and our hope. Amen.